Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Um, first, I would like to thank the genomic medicine for me this great opportunity to speak here. Um, I have very close feeling with Duke uh, while I'm graduating here and I come to the agency, but I still want to come back very often to um, keep the connection and uh, um, set up the opportunity for the collaboration. So today I will spend a whole day here while giving, giving this talk. You can ask me um, any questions while I give the talk. Quite flexible if you are interested in any case example, we still can talk more details about it. So thank you for attending my seminar. So just uh, um, I have the title here. So let's look at um, our guidelines. So today we will talk about Today we will talk about what is the pharmacogenomics and why do we care about that. Next I will say something about genomic medicine in the drug development and also what do we think about from regulatory perspective. And I will give you some case examples about the genomic progress, in especially in the new drug um, applications. And we will conclude what we learn from the pharmacogenomics and what we see it in the future. So let me explain first about pharmacogenomics. People always say two concepts, the pharmacogenomics and the pharmacogenetics. So we always see these two concepts at the same time. And the ICHE15 actually gives the definition of the genomic biomarker and the pharmacogenomics and the pharmacogenetics. So that is a guideline showing the study of the variation of DNA and RNA characteristics if they are related to drug response, we call it pharmacogenomics. The pharmacogenetics actually will be the subset of the pharmacogenomics. It is a study of the variation in the DNA sequence related with drug response. So why do we care about pharmacogenomics? And why do we think it's so important? A very recent paper um, do an investigation a very recent study from 2007 to 2010. It includes 83 studies who failed, especially at phase three trials. Among these 83 cases, you will see 28% come from the oncology area. 18% come from the neurology and the psychiatry drug. 13% from the alimentary and metabolism that includes obesity and diabetes. 13% come from the antivirus drug uh, and 8% from the cardiovascular drug. And if you look into further, you will see 19% drug failed because they are lack of efficacy and they have safety issues. And 66% because of lack of efficacy, 21st because, because they are, do not meet the safety standard. And if we look into the subcategory of the efficacy, you will see the 32% because they cannot compete with the placebo, and 5% they cannot compete with the active control, which some drugs already on the market, and 29% because they failed as an add-on therapy. So from those drugs which cannot compete the placebo, we see the majority are from the neurology drug and the psychiatry drug. While those who cannot compete with add-on therapy, 
the majority at the oncology drug. So we are asking, while we are still under high demand of the medical needs, why we still have so many failures in the phase three trial. Therefore, we have to say that if you want to improve the successful rate of the clinical trial, the first important thing is relying on the high quality scientific evidence based on the mechanism against the indica indication. And you have to use the well-defined endpoints in the right patient population. This figure showing you a pipeline of the drug discovery um, and development. You will see several phases here. Um, the non-clinical phase and the clinical phase. Clinical phase include phase one, two, three, four. At non-clinical phase, people do the in vivo and in vitro study and using animal models. While from the phase one, they start to testing on the healthy volunteers. At the phase one, they look into the formulation, what can be the maximum tolerated dose. And phase two, they start to look into a small group of the patients, look at the drug, the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamics. Phase three will be the well-controlled clinical trial to support the drug uh, approval. At this stage, the efficacy and safety will be the major concerns. And phase four is the post-marketing study. Um, it doesn't mean that the drug once approved, it has no problem. So once it in a larger, even very worldwide population, many issues will be found out. For example, like uh, Avastin recently got withdrawn from the market because of the lack of efficacy. So it cannot be used for the breast cancer patients. And some drugs have very severe um, adverse events, such as like uh, heart failure, kidney failure, or liver failure. So those cannot be, be used with in, in some po um, population. So they also need to be get withdrawn from the market. Here I just want to show you a list um, from the NGC side and see how we pay attention to pharmacogenomics and how we make it progress. So 2005, we come out with our first guidance on the pharmacogenomic data submission. And the same year, we have the concept paper on the drug and device co-development. 2011, we come out with the companion guidance. At this stage, we have more details about the data, what kind of data sponsor need to submit, and what kind of format you need to submit. 2010, we have the E16 concept paper on the biomarker qualification format and data standard. And we have a clinical guidance for the HCV drug, and that includes how you conducted pharmacogenomic study in this particular therapeutic area. And we also come out a guidance for the qualification process for the drug development tools, which help to collaborate um, the, the academic and the industry to develop some particular tools for the later drug discovery and the development. And 2011, 
we come out the guidance for the clinical <coughs> pharmacogenomics. This is used for the pre-marketing evaluation, especially in early phase study, phase one, phase two, and it's also included some like phase three information. And right now, we are prepared the guidance on the clinical trial, especially using for the enrichment strategy. So let's see generally what pharmacogenomics in those um, pipelines, in those phases, what they can do. First, they can identify the basis of pharmacokinetics outlier and explain the intersubject variability in the clinical response. It will also help you to understand why those polymorphics can causing the clinical variability for the PK, PD, and efficacy and safety. Also, when you take several drugs at the same time, pharmacogenomics can help you to estimate magnitude of potential drug-drug interaction. Example, like if you take several drugs together, perhaps it will enhance the efficacy, but sometimes it also go to the wrong direction. And the last, it will help to design clinical trials to test for great responders in some specific population. So um, here I just want to share you because if you are a physician and also you are some medical student, then you will always try to see the drug label before you prescribe the drug. So I will see you when you see some, um, um, some like pharmacogenomic information in the labeling, you can identify what do they mean. For example, the first I want to show you, you always see that something about the genetic test in FDA there are three level languages regarding to the genetic test to be considered, recommended, and necessary. So to be considered is a very low level language. So like a, while you're a physician, you see it, it doesn't mean that you have to ask the genetic test, but you can do it if like the like insurance company um, pay for it or anything that's benefit for the, for the patient, you can, you can ask for it. Why you, if you see the recommended, this kind of little bit stronger, that's saying like, uh, okay, we've already seen some evidence there, and uh, we prefer that from FDA side, we prefer this, the physician to do the genetic testing for the patient before the prescription. While you see the language for the necessary, that means we have very solid evidence. And the, physician need to do this because try to avoid any severe adverse events and make sure that patient can receive the efficacy from the drug. So generally in the drug label, you will always see the first, the indication and the usage. And the pharmacogenomics as information appear in this section always related with the right patient's selection. And in the dosage section and the administration, that always say that for subgroup patients, based on their genetic makeup, what kind of dose recommended here? 
And for box warning and contraindication, warning and precaution and adverse reaction, at this time, pharmacogenomics is related with drug safety. And in drug intersection section, that you will see the magnitude of the pharmacogenomic information can provide it for drug-drug interaction. Clinical pharmacology, you will see how pharmacogenomics related with pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. In the clinical studies section, then you will see how the drug related with efficacy. And last, when you see the special population section, you will always know, okay, some particular genotypes always associated with adverse events within a specific population, such as pediatric population, hair impairment, renal impairment, and elderly patients. So from here, I would like to share you some case examples regarding to pharmacogenomics applications in the new drug application. I will talk about them in four categories, the efficacy prediction, and the common side effect prediction, rare side effect prediction, and the marketing promotion. So if you have any question from here, we can stop and, tell and explain one by one. So first, I would like to share you some example in the, um, in the efficacy part. And the first example is a hepatitis C virus example. I think HCV has been uh, widely um, studied in the Duke, and this disease discovered in the late 1980s. We know that actually it has a very high prevalence in the world, and in the US every year it costs 10 to 20,000 people die. And this is also the result causing the liver transplantation in the US as a leading reason. HCV has 11 major type genotypes, and especially the genotype 1 accounts for 80% of HCV patients in the United States and 60 around the world, percent around the world. Currently, the standard of care of, for the HCV is in, injected pack interferon alpha and oral form of the ribavirin. And interesting that uh, a lot of studies, genetic studies, have been investigated in these two, two drugs. And people are saying that no matter in the pack interferon or the ribavirin, that this genetic biomarker specific genotypes, CC homozygous genotype, always has a um, better responder, um, have many better, uh, have more responders. Um, compared with a heterozygous genotype and a minor homozygous genotype. No matter you see in the Caucasian population, African and Hispanic. So this is consistent in this stand care. So interestingly, that uh, this year, uh, Merck submitted a new drug for the Perceptrovir, and Vertex submitted a new drug, Teleprevir. And they coming at the same time and got approved at the same time. Um, these both drugs look all uh, both drugs look into a chronic hepatitis C genotype one infection. 
in combined with pack interferon and ribavirin. So those are the add-on therapies with the current standard of care. Both drugs have the same mechanism, and they both look into the pharmacogenomic study, which are related with the standard of care. So they look at this genetic biomarker, IL-28B, that special uh, RS marker information, and they look into the sustained virus response rate tend to be lower in the subject with this biomarker, heterozygous and the minor homozygous genotype compared with those major homozygous genotype. So the genetic study of this add-on therapy is consistent with the genetic study of the standard care. My second example is about this metastatic melanoma example. We know actually this is a very bad tumor in the skin and have a very wide um, diagnosis uh, in the world. And the median survival is only six to nine months. And uh, last year is around like 9,000 people died from it. And there are also a lot of genetic study um, involved with this disease progression. I'm not uh, talking in detail, but I want to say something about the treatment. So currently there are several standards of care for this um, melanoma. First is the chemical therapy, um, which approved a very long time ago. Um, it's a class of the iconating engines. Well, 2008, they come to the immunotherapy that interleukin-2, which, uh, which is using the cytokine immune system signal molecule. And uh, this year, we have the ipilimumab, which is a monoantibody um, binding the cytotoxic T lymphocyte associated antigen 4. The thing actually I want to propose today is actually a drug using special specially using the pharmacogenomic information. Because actually long time ago, people started to look into this melanoma and they found 60% of these melanoma patients carry the BRAF V600E gene. So this company look into the, this gene and they develop a drug, is a BRAF enzyme inhibitor. And of course, if you are, if you are the, if you're the patients who carry this gene, the drug is very effective. If you do not carry this gene, then you cannot use this drug because it will help your tumor grow. Therefore, while developing this drug, the company also developed a genetic test. They help the physician to determine whether the patients are eligible to receive this drug, and they are using the DNA samples from the tissue. And in their clinical trial, they show the great superiority for this drug compared with the standard of care. They show the overall survival, 9.2 months compared with 7.8 months, and the overall response rate, the new drug have the almost 50% responder compared with the standard of care. 5% only. So 
at two examples, you may understand a little bit how the gene 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 genomic information can help the both the from the sponsor side or the patient side to improve the efficacy of the drug. Just here, I'm showing you a, a table I, uh, with more with more examples here showing how the genetic variation can affect the efficacy of the treatment, uh, including like uh, some many drugs like warfarin. And uh, I could not tell you um, one by one, but you see the drug name, the, their efficacy endpoint, the efficacy allele, the, the frequency of the genetic variants, and also the genetic effects. Um, I will can I can share the slides while um, while after my presentation, but I just want to mention one thing, that from the last column, the genetic effects you will see, no matter is some kind of like a minor genetic effects to a high, very high genetic effects, genetic information always plays a role, um, in the disease progression and also the drug treatment. I just want to show you that. Um, pay attention, when, when our investigator pay attention to do the drug investigation, then this should be considered among your investigation. And my second category will talk about the common side effect. This time is about HIV drug. Um, I think people are familiar with Abacvir, that actually uh, developed by GSK. Um, here in the RTP, and uh, um, the drug actually treated for the HIV and the uh, AIDS patients. And uh, people probably already already read that Abacvir has a kind of adverse events with the hypersensitivity, and that occur in five to eight percent of the patients. And seems like hypersensitivity is consists like a fever, rash. A very general symptoms, and they always go away. Why, if you do not take the drug, but rechallenging patients can produce a very severe fatal reaction. So there are a lot of studies looking into the Bacvir and the hypersensitivity reaction, and they found this genetic biomarker is associated with these adverse events. So a very famous trial actually looked into. A, a group of patients which never treated by a backwear, the sample size is two, almost 2,000, and this randomized into two arms. One arm is they receive stent care without the genetic screen, and the other arm they do the genetic screen um, before they receive a backwear, and they exclude those positive marker positive patients. Only marker negative patients continue in the trial. And they found, actually, the, 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 this genetic screening greatly helped to decrease the incidence of these adverse events from 7.8% to the 3.4%. And a consistent conclusion was also found in the independent cohorts in Australia, UK, and France. Therefore, in the FDA, later we updated the label, and in the black box warning, that's the highest level of the, um, highest level to warning the um, patients and the physician. that patients who carry this genetic marker allele is at high risk for experiencing the hypersensitivity reaction to a bacteria. 
We say prior to initiating therapy with Bacovir, screening for the HLA-B, starts 570, is recommended. The, the, the genetic, the, the, the marker negative patients still can develop a suspected of a hypersensitivity reaction because we just say the clinical trial only show they decrease from 7.8 to 3.4. That doesn't say that, um, that, doesn't, that actually mean that the marker, the HLA marker, only explain a proportion of the adverse events and it can help prevent only a small proportion. It doesn't mean actually erase it. But actually, this occurs significantly can, can decrease the frequency in those patients who carry the genetic marker in positive. And this is just a map trying to show you that the prevalence of this genetic marker in the world. The reason why I want to point it out, because you will see actually the Caucasian will be the largest benefit population who receiving this genetic, genetic screening, because almost like 8% or five to seven percent, they receive the drug uh, while they carry the marker positively. So they probably, if they have the genetic testing, they, they will know they will know actually whether they are be the be be the person who can avoid the adverse reaction. While this may not uh, um, this 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 genetic test may not be popular in the Asian population because in China and Japan actually very few people who carrying this disease uh, who carry this gene, so um, probably um, people does not need so um, does not need um, need need this genetic test um, very necessarily. My second example is about anti-epilepsy drug, which is also approved drug a long time ago, the cabamazepine. Um, similarly, the cabamazepine also will causing some inflammation cells in the skin lesions. So like uh, they also will have the f um, fever, the rash, and the, the most importantly, they will causing the Steven Johnson syndrome and the toxic epidermal necrolysis. This time, um, the people are looking into the adverse events and genetics, and they found this HLA-B15202. And this gene, this time, is very common in the Chinese population. And uh, there's a meta-analysis study, and uh, in the almost like 100 patients, and it includes 60 Steven Johnson's uh, syndrome patients, and uh, they have the 150 controls. And this is a gene map which shows the susceptibility, susceptibility regions of the um, re related with the with this um, cutaneous reaction. And they found actually this genetic region showing the very highest odds ratio and significance p-value. It show this HLAB region closely related with Steven Johnson. Based on those evidence, we updated our label and we come out that this genetic marker find almost exclusively in patients 
with ancestry cross broad area of Asia. And patients with ancestry in genetic risk population should be screened for the presence of gene prior initiating treatment with carbamazepine. So we define the test is positive if either one or two mutations are detected and negative if no mutations are detected. Um, my third category is about uh, a rare side effect. And uh, I will talk about the acute lymphatic leukemia example. And we know that this 6MP is very commonly used to treat this, um, the leukemia um, for a long time ago. And we understand this drug is metabolized by the thyropurine mycetransferase genes. And we understand because it metabolized by this um, metabolism gene, and if the metabolism gene have the deficient, if the people who carry the deficient metabolizer actually can have the increased level of the metabolite and will have a high risk for severe, sometimes very fatal adverse reaction called myelosuppression. This myelosuppression is a kind of bone marrow suppression. It will decrease the number of cells responsible to provide the immunity carry oxygen and the normal blood clotting. So you will see, you, you will have decreased white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. This figure actually showing you, um, okay, there's a poor metabolizer population and a normal population. And originally, conventional in the conventional treatment, everybody received the same dose, 500 milligrams per week, and you will see for the mutation carriers, they always have a very high systemic exposure compared with the heterozygous and the white type patients. And therefore, they have the highest toxicity. While if you do consider about genetic effects inside mm -hmm. and re you reduce the mutation carrier patients, the dose for mutation carrier patients to like 5%, of the normal dosing, then you will see actually the system, system systemic exposure will also will become similar, and that will not causing any adverse events, which may lead patient to be dead. Um, so already um, our geneticists and the translational scientists already find that the mutation causing this. Um, Deficient metabolizer is a star 2, star 3A, and star 3, 4, so that's star 3C, 3AC. So that it is already recommended to do before the therapy. So from FDA side, we set up the box warning and saying, okay, the lab test already available, both from genetic, gen genotypic way or phenotypic way, to determine the metabolism gene status. And uh, it is always required to have the dose reduction for those homozygous TPMT deficiency patients to avoid that 
adverse transact uh, adverse reaction. And uh, although those seems like a heterozygous patients with the inter intermediate TPMT activity may increase the toxicity. So we still close monitoring those patients and to avoid that any adverse reaction, if they do have the evidence, then the test is needed. So consistent with the just efficacy examples, I show you some examples here, listing the drug, the adverse reaction, their prevalence of adverse reaction, the genetic alleles may closely related with those adverse reaction, and their genetic effects evaluated. The last example I want to give you is about um, marketing promotion. So we know actually um, when sponsors submitted their drug, they have to compete with the drug already on the market. So how do they make the advertisement saying that a drug is better than the current drug? But sometimes it's really hard. And uh, when they compare safety, when they compare efficacy, and also they can use the genetic information there. So the example I want to show you is about acute coronary syndrome. And to, treatment, to treat this, um, this disease, there are several drugs already on the market. For example, the clopidogrel. We already see the advertisement every day. And uh, we got a new drug in 2009 that's called Presgrip. When a drug submitted to the agency, we ask what's the difference of your drug and compare with clopidogrel. And the sponsor shows us, okay, our drug have a different metabolism pathway. So clopidogrel have two, two steps of the metabolism pathway. So these, they metabolize by CYP2C19, A1, 2B6, and 2C9. While our new drug only have one step metabolism. And, uh, and you will see, actually, it will major metabolize by 3A45, 2B6, and a minor contributed by, from the 2C19 and 2C9. And then we look at into the genetic studies. And we found the CYP genotypes do not influence the press grill, while it does influence the clopidogrel. So this figure actually shows you systemic exposure of the metabolite, active metabolite. And it characterized by the ultra metabolizer, this are subpopulation, subgroup population, extensive metabolizer, that's generally a normal people, normal patients intermediate metabolizer and poor metabolizer. And you will see the price grill at this dose, actually the systemic exposure is almost the same between the subgroups. While if you see the clopidogrel, the poor metabolizer has the lowest, ex, ex, um, lowest um, metabolite exposure. While they also look into the pharmacodynamics and the change of the maximum platelet aggregation. And they also found CYP genotypes do not influence the, the presgrill antiplatelet re response while clopidogrel does. In the safety issue, 
that also say that in all um, the acute coronary syndrome population or in the non-ST elevation MI patients, the poor metabolized patients in the clopidogrel always have the highest um, adverse event than compared with their extensive metabolized patients. While in the presbyteral, it seems like very consistent. Therefore, when the presbyteral ask um, for the label and in their future, um, the marketing promotion, they claim there is no relevant effects of genetic variation of these metabolism genes on the PK and presbyteral active metabolite and also their PD endpoint, the inhibition of the platelet aggregation, while the clopidogrel has to change their label to say that clopidogrel active metabolite PK and antiplatelet effects differ according to the 2C19, and also the, the other CYP enzymes may also affect this active metabolite. So this is a very successful example showing actually sponsors smartly using this strategy to compete with the current drug on the market. So I'm almost close to the end of my talk. So here I just want to share you some um, my thoughts about the, when we do the translation medicine, what kind of barriers may exist. First is from the sponsor side, it's about some like a test factors. So sponsors always have some issue with the assay validating time of the result showing how fast patients or the, um, the physician can get their genotype information and the cost they need to consider about it. Also from our academic side, we always um, need to have a very solid and multiple um, confirmatory studies to show the evidence is very robust. From the from the agency side, we need to make a right decision, and we need to make sure that whether this is certain or not, and how do we interpret those contraindications, uh, those actually the, some results are positive, some results are negative, we have to consider about how to interpret them. And the, from the physician side, they need to about thinking about the real practice. They need to use this pharmacogenomic information, and in their clinical practice and see how make it into the clinical utility. And what do we learn from the pharmacogenomics research? And this is my personal opinion and definitely I think everybody have a different opinion. So <laughs> I just want to say that what I, what I think about it is about genetic architecture. When you are doing a pharmacogenomics study, it's not the same for all the traits. So different drug, different drug responses and different disease progression. The genetic um, architecture may have different impact in it. So you have to think about it. And for those genes with the drug associated adverse, adverse events, I mean, we see some two case examples, carbamazepine and abacavir. They show very high sensitivity and specificity. So they can be used as a classifier to say, okay, what kind of patient is good for, for receiving this, uh, this drug? So that's a very good example for the uh, personalized medicine. But not all the genetic effects can be used for that um, purpose. 
Therefore, you see, the reason why we see a lot of successive examples because they're easily to study it. They, have, they are in a single gene human disease. So they are easily studied. They have very high genetic effects. While for those, um, um, for those like diabetes or like obesity, they probably have very common um, genetic effects get involved. So it's hard to um, apply the pharmacogenomics. We have to uh, admit that effect. But I guess like with our technology um, keep uh, making, uh, uh, with making progress and with more and more studies, we'll definitely find the secret between this with the like intermediate um, genetic effects. And we will see how those can greatly influence the, the adverse events and the drug response. So my last slide is just uh, about the cartoon. But that is uh, what I want to conclude today. I think that the personalized medicine actually will be the future of the clinical medicine. That one day, a patient come, have some, some situation, and they went to see the doctor. And doctor gave him some measurements and take his genetic example. And they take to the lab, and they compare to the, the using the patient information to compare the things um, in the, in the database existing. And they finally get uh, optimized, optimized therapy and using the right drug in the right, uh, in the right patients. Then the patient can receive the best benefit from the treatment. Thank you all. spoke a lot about black box warnings, and in an earlier slide you showed um, for the labeling uh, maybe categories of um, consideration for genetic testing, recommendation for genetic testing, or even necessary. So my question is about um, what are the levels of evidence that the FDA is requiring for these different categories, and what's the process by which those determinations are made? Um, we currently have not very, very um, standard language for saying that uh, under what kind of situation the drug is con to be considered, or the test is to be considered or um, recommended. But that's based on the evidence we collected. Um, for example, the reason why C carbamazepine is required, um, because all the positive studies show that. Um, the genetic marker has a very strong association um, with that um, the adverse events. While for the abacavir, you see that the genetic testing only explains a portion of the adverse events. So we use a soft, softer language using a recommended. But is this achieved through some, uh, I mean, uh, is this a consensus of an expert panel Expert, uh, an expert panel within the FDA or outside the FDA? What's the process by which those determinations are made? Um, we generally, um, if under that situation, we generally first we have internal discussion, then we have the advisory committee meeting, have the discussion, and then that you will involve the both. The advisory committee that yeah. finalizes Yeah, I have the both academic people and industry people involved. So is that also balanced by the risk? So back to, to that point, you have with the back of ear, you don't have the complete story, perhaps in one at one locus, but 
the adverse event is potentially life-threatening. It's not necessarily manageable if it's... Yeah, the, 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 yeah you're right. So does that, that must influence the, so I think, the outcome. So if that actually we find that the, um, the last example, yeah, if we find that actually leading the fatal reaction, then definitely we also need to be required. Yeah, that also based on the adverse reaction, the level of adverse reaction. I just have a question regarding the development of uh, companion diagnostic. Okay. Then how do, um, does it mean that companion diagnostic is required to be developed and approved via PMA only if in the language of the future approved label will be necessary? Okay, so this is very, um, we proposed that concept a very long time ago, but um, the guidance is still uh, in the progress. And especially we have some internal debate right now. So I cannot give you a definite answer right now. So seems like um, my personal thinking, it's not from FDA, but my personal thinking like perhaps um, um, later on this may not be required. Okay, so what you mean is actually based on those, um, do we have any standards based on that, how we claim that is uh, right. signi clinical significance or statistics? Yeah, tied in with, with uh, Dr. Ginsburg's comments about the, the label itself, but also do you have standards for how the, you know, the effect size and the interval estimate um, for that effect size? Are okay, I have to say, we come out that the clinical pharmacogenomic guidance, uh, I don't know if all of you have seen it, but um, frankly speaking, we haven't um, reached that level, saying that clearly, and, and because situations are very complete, uh, com complicated and also case by case. So I guess perhaps in the later, when you see the clinical guidance, for example, like HCV guide, um, drug, particular um, therapeutic clinical guidance, they probably will say about um, under what kind of on what kind of level that means it's a real clinical significant. Yeah, how can I say? Because um, from the sponsor side, first um, they didn't see anything. That may that may not because genetic does not play the effects because there are so many confounding factors inside may mask it. So we, I mean, from the regulatory side, we cannot help the sponsor to say okay. Yeah, I was just saying, but the FDA is also in charge of looking at the messages that these companies, that pharma companies produce. So yeah, definitely. I have to say one thing that uh, from from the FDA approval, um, the first thing we look into is whether you can have better efficacy mm -hmm. and uh, less safety events. This is the first priority. While you want to use the genetic information to promote, do the marketing promotion, um, promotion that's allowed. It's just based on if you have the evidence there. I think that that. that I'm curious, I know this is not about the agency. I'm just asking you. Your yeah, I guess like a, um, we do. I think the most majority that not be a standard is um, we do have a lot of discussion even with that insurance company. So um, that's actually because whether genetic testing can be included in the personal insurance, that's also considered about the cost of the issue. So that's not only have the scientific evidence involved, um, also based on the, based on the 
how much cost of that testing um, patient can afford that and whether insurance company can so, take care of it. So insurance is clearly one of the one of the drivers of adoption is what you're saying. Um, and yet the insurance companies are seeing the same evidence that the FDA is seeing. Yeah, I do. I, I, I remember last year I attended the um, uh, ASHG annual meeting, and uh, the insurance company show actually some results, which, uh, I mean, different insurance companies show different results and um, result evidence of the evidence about those um, genetic testing. So I have to say that we need to work on it to make it consistent, and we need to push forward. For the, I mean, for once we have the evidence, then we have to make the language strong. And so, um, 